Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, greetings to all of you on this uh, long weekend. I want to welcome those who are joining from one of our regionals, our regionals in the Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary, in Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online audience as well. Do you know that in the last three years, I have preached more during long weekends than anyone else here at CSC? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have so many pastors here at this church, so my title could be Pastor of Long Weekend Ministries. <laughs> and that's why I chuckle when it rains on a long weekend like it did yesterday, because I know some of you are here because of that. So when it rains on a long weekend, just know that there's no accident. The Bible says the prayers of a righteous man avails much, just saying. You know, over the last few weeks, as I have been reflecting on what to share with you this weekend and the following one, I felt the Lord impressed this theme in my heart, hope in troubled times. There's no denying the fact that we are living in troubled times, and hope seems to be so scarce in our world today. You know, as pastors, we regularly minister to people in distress. And it's been that kind of season in my own personal ministry, walking with people from our congregation, going through job losses, illness, marriage problems, depression, loss of loved ones, battle with addictions, all kinds of personal challenges. And I want you to know that you've been in my heart and I've been praying for you even as I was preparing this message 2015 has been a difficult year so far. We have witnessed economic downturn resulting in several people losing jobs. Just three days ago, a news item in Calgary Herald reported the oil price collapse continues to darken Alberta's economic outlook. With the Conference Board of Canada forecasting the province's two biggest cities, Calgary and Edmonton, will fall into recession this year. We also have a new government in power, and we all are wondering, what does this mean for the future of our province? Well, to their credit, they have helped boost the sale of uh, Orange Crest sodas, but we are hoping that they can boost our economy as well. A week does not go by without hearing something horrendous happening in some part of the world. The Islamic State seems to continue its rampage, and world leaders are so clueless on how to respond to this impending crisis. It seems to be going for far too long. We watched in horror this back-to-back -back earthquake in Nepal that has just left the country in shambles. And people are afraid to even sleep inside their houses. And that's why when I read this article in The Guardian titled, Nepal quake survivors face threat from human traffickers supplying sex trade. I couldn't believe my eyes. Is this really true? That young girls and women ravaged by the earthquake will become prime target for human traffickers who will forcibly sell them into sex trade all across South Asia. 
So what is more disturbing than the natural disaster itself is the depravity of the human heart that can take advantage of the innocent and the suffering. And that depravity is not just in Nepal. It's there everywhere. So this is the question we wrestle with today. Is there really any hope in these troubled times when we are clearly staring at a political, economic, moral, and spiritual crisis? And yet, as you open your Bibles, you see a very different viewpoint. Biblical hope has nothing to do with the circumstances of our life, but it has everything to do with the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 tells us, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The anchor is an ancient symbol for stability. Hope does not arise from denying the fact that we are living in troubled times. But hope arises when we learn to anchor ourselves in the Lord in the midst of our troubled times. If you ever visit the catacombs in Rome, those underground tunnels where many of the early Christians were buried, you will see symbols of faith in those tombstones. Archaeologists discovered three common symbols portrayed in the tombstones of early Christians. The dove, the fish, and the anchor. The dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the fish stands for? People love putting the fish symbol in, the, in their car bumpers. You ask them what it means, they may tell you, because Jesus called us to be fishers of men. But that's not the right answer. The Greek word for fish is ictus, and it stands as an acronym or acrostic for the phrase, Jesus Christ, Son of God and Savior. So early Christians used the fish symbol as a secret code to refer to Jesus. I hope you learned something new today. The third symbol in the catacombs is the anchor. It came from this idea that as Christians are going through insecure, troubled times, their hope in Christ anchored their souls. And if there is a symbol that we need to display today, it's the anchor. Now, I want to remind us, we are not the only generation facing troubles. There are generations that have gone ahead of us who have faced far more challenges than we have. And yet they learned to anchor their life in Christ and it gave them stability. Several centuries ago, a man in the Old Testament gives us a vision of what it means to hope in the midst of troubles. His name was Isaiah. It's this grand vision of Isaiah that I want to present to us today. I'm going to request us to stand as we read from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. 
and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Shall we commit our time to the Lord in prayer? Father, we know that there are a lot of chaos and troubles in the world around us. But this very moment, we want to lift up our eyes towards heaven. And we pray that, Lord, you will give us a fresh new vision. That you are the Lord who is seated on the throne, high and exalted. That we will have a great and deep confidence in the fact that you reign from above. Father, we pray that you will dispel our own fears and anxieties, that you will renew our hope, that we will see you as Isaiah saw the Lord, and we will never be the same as a result of that. So we commit this time from the beginning to the end into your hands. Lead us by your Holy Spirit, for we ask this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you may be seated. what we read just now must be one of the most dramatic passages in the Bible as Isaiah has a face-to-face encounter with God and is being commissioned as a prophet. You have to understand the background of this passage in order to grasp its meaning. King Uzziah had just died, leaving the throne of Judah vacant. Uzziah was a great king. He ascended to the throne at the young age of 16 and ruled for 52 long years. Second Chronicles chapter 26 verses 3 to 5 tells us about Uzziah's rule. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jecolia. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. 
As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. For the better part of his life, Uzziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was committed to God. He sought the Lord. And the Lord in turn blessed him with success. So as a result, Uzziah was able to defeat the Philistines. He built Judah's military and, and took them to a standard almost as high as during King David's time. There was economic prosperity. Agriculture was thriving. The livestock flourished. The nation became wealthy. So everything was going so smooth for Judah. Uzziah was hailed as a hero and a role model. Second Chronicles 26 verse 8 tells us, The Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread as far as the border of Egypt, because he had become very powerful. But at the last part of his life, Uzziah allowed his accomplishments to go to his head. He became proud and conceited, and it ultimately resulted in his downfall. Uzziah attempted to burn incense in the temple, a sacred responsibility reserved for the priests alone. When the priests resisted him, his response was, I am Uzziah, I sit on the throne of Judah. No one can stop me from doing what I want. And that very moment, the king was struck with leprosy. And from that time till the day he died, he was kept in a separate house. So Uzziah started very well, but he did not finish well. But to the world around him, Uzziah was still the good and powerful king who had uplifted the nation. When Uzziah died, it was a time of national mourning. It was the end of an era. A great king who had fought against the enemies of Judah, who had ushered political and economic stability, was gone with the wind. The throne of Judah was now empty, resulting in turmoil. The security of the people was shattered. And the powerful Assyrian army was bulldozing nations and conquering them. With Judah reeling under the death of their king, with an empty throne, they were a prime target for the Assyrians. So it is with this background in mind, we read Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah came to the temple in this time of grief, seeking God for comfort. Every eye in Judah was looking downward, fixed on Uzziah's death. But Isaiah lifted his eyes upward towards heaven. Someone said, when the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. So Isaiah's outlook was bleak, but he saw a vision from heaven's point of view. The throne of Judah was empty because Uzziah was not on the throne. But Isaiah saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne. 
You can't help but notice the contrast. And when our passage tells on the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, the word used for Lord is Adonai, meaning the sovereign one. That's his title. So the Lord is the true ruler, the everlasting king who ruled over Judah. So the throne of Judah was not empty after all. And if the nation of Judah had placed their hope on Uzziah and their security on Uzziah's reign, they were in for a major disappointment. But if they trusted in the Lord and found their security in him, then they would never be disappointed. Like the nation of Judah, it is so easy for us to put our hope on the temporary things of life, to find security in the things that we own. But when our backs are against the wall, that hope is snuffed out precisely because it is a misplaced hope. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us, Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. So the faith that we profess in Christ gives us a confident hope that cannot be snuffed out. Because this hope is anchored on a vision. On the vision of the Lord seated on the throne. It's one of the most powerful imageries in the Bible. This high and exalted vision of God sitting on a throne. Visualize this with me for a moment. The Lord is not pacing back and forth. He is sitting. The Lord is not fretting. He's not anxious. He's calm and composed. The Lord is not losing control over his reign. He is sovereign. And that is why Psalm 97.1 tells us, The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. It does not matter what personal struggles you're going through today. His sovereign rule over this world and over your life has never stopped, not for a second. He is still seated on the throne and he reigns from above. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, there is no attribute more comforting to God's children than his sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly contend to than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his hands, the throne of God and his right to be upon the throne, for it is the God upon the throne whom we trust. In that moment of crisis, Isaiah lifted his eyes and he saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. A person's robe is a symbol of grandeur and royalty. 
at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in the Westminster Abbey, the queen was wearing an exquisite gown. Do you know how long was her rope that trailed behind? It was 21 feet long. And there were many people assigned the task of simply carrying the train of the queen's rope. If you see someone today walking with a rope that trails behind 21 feet, then you will immediately conclude that that person is either really important or really crazy. <laughs> so as Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord seated on a throne and his robe filling the temple, it was a sign of his royalty. Look at verses 2 and 3 in our passage. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. These seraphims around the throne room of God are angelic beings. The word seraph literally means the burning ones. So these burning ones are worshiping God in front of his throne. Now we complain today that the lyrics of our contemporary songs have become very repetitious. And these seraphs have one song in their hymn book. Holy, holy, holy. And they sing that day and night without a break. So what we are seeing here is a heavenly vision of worship that takes place in heaven, an unceasing worship that takes place in the throne room of God that revolves around this one sentence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. The word holy is not just referring to God's moral perfection. The word holy literally means Unique, separate, or set apart. In simple terms, it means there is no one like God in the entire universe. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Holiness of God, describes the word holy as a cut above the rest. So when we say God is holy, what we mean is, he's so far above and so beyond us. He's so great and so awesome that we can never fathom it with our minds. And we desperately need this high and exalted vision of God, especially when we go through troubled times. Isaiah felt depressed and discouraged because the great leader of Judah was no longer on the throne. And God here was pointing to Isaiah. You don't have to worry about it, Isaiah. The king may not be on his throne, but I am on my throne, and that's all you need. And if we, like Isaiah, in our moment of trouble, raise our eyes upward and see this glorious vision, then it really does not matter what problems you're going through in life. You can see your problems in perspective. Think about the biggest problem you're wrestling with right now. 
what does this problem look like in light of this glorious vision of God pictured in Isaiah chapter 6? And that's why the question for you is not how big is your problem? But the question is how big is your God? How you answer that question is so crucial because your hope hinges on that answer. If we are fully convinced that our lives are in the hands of a capable, all-knowing, loving, sovereign God, then we will be abounding in hope. If we can see God as described in the Bible and come to terms with His attributes, we will not be losing sleep over our anxieties. You know, we often hear in the media about the disasters that are taking place all around the world. But seldom do we pay attention to the disasters that have been averted simply because God is sovereign and He's seated on the throne. This incident happened in France just last month. A 24-year-old Islamic terrorist in France was planning to attack churches in Paris. He had an imminent, well-thought-out plan to open fire at church goers. He had more than one church in mind. And that Sunday morning, when he was all ready to execute his vicious plan, believe this or not, he accidentally shot himself in his leg and had to call the ambulance. And further investigations revealed he had an arsenal of weapons in his apartment and was connected to Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Think about this. This terrorist accidentally shot himself on his leg. This is almost goofy, weird stuff. We're not talking about a kid playing with a gun here. This is a hardened criminal loaded to his teeth with ammunition, bent on taking Christian lives, and he shoots himself? When something like that happens, our media may call it an accident, but I tell you, that's not an accident. That's called divine intervention. There is hope for us today in troubled times because the Lord who sits on the throne intervenes in your life and my life and in the affairs of the world. Now I want us to see what happened to Isaiah when he saw this glorious vision of the throne room of God. What kind of impact it had on him. Look at verses 4 and 5. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. As Isaiah witnessed the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple quaking, he started quaking on the inside. He saw with his own eyes the king, the sovereign one, the Lord Almighty. And his response was, Woe to me, I'm ruined. 
Some older translations would use the word, woe to me, I am undone. What is so significant with this response? R.C. Sprawl once again helps us to understand these words in its original context. So I want to give him credit for these thoughts. When prophets spoke, they brought the oracles of God. They were announcements from the Lord, and they could be either good news or bad news. When the prophet brought a good news from the Lord, it was accompanied with the word, blessed, signifying the glad tidings. And when the prophet brought a message of condemnation, then it is almost always accompanied with the word, woe. It's a message of doom. So Isaiah, having seen God face to face, acknowledges his own sinfulness and is pronouncing the judgment of God. He is calling forth for doom on himself. For Isaiah saw his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of the nation like he has never seen before in light of God's holiness. And he was undone. The word undone literally means to come apart at the seams. So what Isaiah experienced here was a personal disintegration. And you got to know this, that Isaiah was a good man. He was a righteous man, maybe the most righteous man in his nation that time. And yet he comes in front of a holy God and he couldn't see himself. He saw that he was sinful and inadequate in light of God's holiness. So he wanted the rocks to fall on him rather than gazing at God's holiness. Note this. Isaiah came into the temple grieving over the loss of the king. Like the rest of Judah, he was preoccupied with the empty throne and the political chaos. But through this encounter with God, Isaiah learned something. The fundamental problem of Judah was not political or economic. Their fundamental problem was spiritual. And it is with this realization, the book of Isaiah opens with these words. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. That, in Isaiah's analysis, was Judah's fundamental problem. They had forsaken the Lord, spurned the Holy One of Israel, turned their backs on Him. And as we look at our world today, get this straight. Our greatest threats are not ISIS. 
It's not economic meltdown. It's not poverty or human trafficking. The Lord is powerful. He's seated on the throne. He can take care of all of those challenges. But the greatest problem for our generation is we, alas, have forsaken the Lord. We have turned our backs on him. And the hopelessness that results from that far outweighs everything else. Just this past weekend, the newspapers reported in America of the decline of Christianity in the United States. It was based on an extensive survey by the Pew Research Center. The lead editor of the report says, the decline is taking place in every region of the country, including the Bible Belt. About a year ago, former Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, issued a dire warning that Christianity was a generation away from extinction in Britain. Unless churches make drastic changes and bring young people back into the fold. And you and I know that things are no different here in the Canadian landscape. With about 25% of our population refusing to affiliate with any religion. We have forsaken the Lord. And we come up with humanistic answers and secular philosophies which try to give answers to the problems of life. Do you know what these answers look like? Hear are these words of the world's famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, as he writes. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Really, Mr. Dawkins, is that your answer to the complex problems of our world? If there is no design, no purpose, no justice, no evil, and no good, then you might as well add to the list, no hope. And that is why a generation that is hung up on Dawkins is in despair and darkness and plunged into this doom. Someone said after reading Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, they felt so hopeless and discouraged that they decided to go to church. <laughs> and when you come to church, you find there is a design, there is a purpose, there is justice, there is evil, there is good, and there is a loving God, and that's why there is hope. Isaiah was in a messy state, shattered by a relentless sense of guilt. Maybe that's where you are today. And I want you to take a closer look at what happens to Isaiah next. As Isaiah acknowledged 
his primary problem and the primary problem of his nation to be spiritual, something amazing happens. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The Bible doesn't just give us a picture of God's holiness, but it also gives us a picture of God's forgiveness. God did not destroy Isaiah. He did not overpower him, but he cleansed him. And as Isaiah repented of his sins, the Lord granted forgiveness. As that burning coal was taken from the altar where the animals would be offered as a sacrifice, as that burning coal touches Isaiah's lips, he was not hurt, he was healed. Isaiah, your sin has been atoned for and your guilt taken away. Those are the most hope-filled words anyone can ever hear. How can this holy God atone for sins? How can this thrice holy God accept sinful men? You cannot understand Isaiah chapter 6 without Isaiah 53. One of the clearest chapters that speak of the atonement. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hear this. Atonement and forgiveness is possible only because of the cross. Because there at the cross, you see God's holiness and God's grace coming together. It's there at the cross where we see our iniquities were laid on him. And it is there at the cross our sins were atoned for and our guilt forever taken away. And it is only because of the cross our world still has hope. And that moment when Isaiah was cleansed, he hears the voice of God. You will never be able to hear God's voice until you've experienced that cleansing. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. The Lord was looking for a volunteer. This sovereign one who's seated on the throne, this King, Lord Almighty, was looking for a spokesperson, an ambassador, who will bring his message to a world in darkness. Having been cleansed and healed, Isaiah was no longer disintegrated. The Lord had made him whole, put him together. And he responded by saying, Here am I, send me. 
And Isaiah would be an agent of God to a generation in despair. His message would face great oppositions, great challenges. It was a difficult calling. But centuries later, we still read the book of Isaiah and find hope in the promises in this book. And today, that's what the gospel does for us. There's no power in this world that can accomplish this. For the gospel of Jesus Christ takes broken people, disintegrated people, people whose hearts are shattered, puts them together and commissions them to be ambassadors of hope to a world in despair. No other message can accomplish this. That's why the most hopeful people are those who have been forgiven, whose guilt has been taken away. And today we are sent by God to bring that hope to others. I'll close with this story. The 18th century German Christians were called the Moravians. And they were an extraordinary bunch of people. The Moravians had a deep impact on the life of John Wesley, which eventually led to his conversion. When you read Wesley's journals, you will see that this is true. Wesley was on board a ship on his way to America as a missionary. He himself had not experienced a personal assurance of salvation, nevertheless was going as a missionary to America. In that journey, they encountered severe storms that tore the main mast of the ship. Wesley was so afraid, so frightened, that he wrote in his journal, it was as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. But in that same ship, the Moravian missionaries were traveling. And Wesley could not believe how calm they appeared as they quoted psalms and sang songs of praise in the midst of the storm. According to John Wesley, their lack of fear unsettled him more than the storm itself. Wesley pondered in his heart, how can they be so hopeful, so calm in the midst of an obvious catastrophe? And he learned that the Moravians had anchored their life in Jesus Christ. It was such a powerful witness to young John Wesley, which eventually led to his own conversion. In the words of G.K. Chesterton, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. So when you look at troubled times, church, do not be discouraged. Because the troubled times provide us an incredible opportunity to demonstrate the hope that we have. In the midst of the hopelessness of the world, our hope in Christ is a strength. And Jesus shines ever so brightly in the midst of the darkness and gloom of the world. 
And when the world around us that's crouching in fear and despair and wallowing in hopelessness sees our Christian hopes stand tall, they will be attracted to it. I'm going to ask us to stand as we come to a close. I believe there are two groups of people here today. Some of you, you need to be reminded afresh of this vision of God seated on the throne. You feel so overwhelmed by your current experiences. You feel you are in despair because of the troubles you're going through. I want to ask you to look upward like Isaiah and see this glorious vision of the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne and because the Lord reigns you can rejoice. And there are others of us who need to respond to the call of God because God is still looking for volunteers. He still says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And if you feel that nudging in your heart, just raise your hands right now and say, Lord, here am I. And when you do that, I know and I believe that God would use you in amazing ways more than you can imagine to be an agent of hope in the troubled times. So give us a moment so we can reflect and ponder and respond to God however, we, however he is leading you and our closest in prayer. Father, I ask right now that you will do a supernatural work through your spirit in opening the eyes of our heart that we will be able to see what Isaiah saw, this grand and glorious vision that you are exalted on high, that you are seated on a throne and you reign over our lives and over this world. And let that vision sink in so deeply, Lord, that it will dispel all the hopelessness and despair that we wrestle with. That we will leave this place abounding in hope because we have seen you. We have experienced you. We have encountered you through your word. And we thank you that you would call us to be your ambassadors. And we want to respond today. Here we are. Here we are. Take us, Lord, all of our lives. And employ us in your service. That we will be put together. Made whole. And commissioned to be people who will bring hope to others. So accomplish this by the power of your spirit. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the love of our heavenly Father and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.